You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and I'm delighted to be back with you here. And as we pick through the rubble of the collision of media, entertainment, and technology to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help us get through these troubled times, we've got a, we've got a jam-packed show. I'm going to be featuring a conversation I had with Govan Balakrishnan, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Curio, which does subscription audio. They have partnerships with a bunch of big news organizations and others and use professionals to read that content and then present it to you on a daily basis from around the world. It's an interesting model, and Govins was a delightful person to talk with. It's the second time I've interviewed him in the last year and a half. I think you'll enjoy the conversation, so stay tuned for that. But we couldn't talk about subscription media this week without talking about Quibi and its downfall and what that means for companies of all kinds trying to make their way in this new era of streaming media. I think uh, it's important to say that Quibi, for all its mess, has a lot of lessons for all of us. I mean, it's easy to snark about Quibi, which just became one of the biggest and quickest digital media disasters ever. Plenty of folks on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn piled on this week when founder Jeffrey Katzenberg and CEO Meg Whitman announced that the short-form video company would wind down operations by December 1st. Many comments were along the lines of helpful, if rather pugnacious, suggestions on the alternative ways one could spend the $1.75 billion that could be raised in its short existence. While that subject certainly fertile ground, the debate is also providing genuine opportunities for other businesses to learn about how to successfully navigate many obstacles in their own startup process and I would say often by doing the opposite of whatever Quibi did. Let me just interject and make sure that it's clear that I am not going to dance on Quibi's grave, as many did. I think that's unfortunate, and it ignores the fact that a couple of hundred people are out of jobs. Other people I know don't have a client or a place for a project that they had created in good faith. There's one less place that creative people can take their projects and get them made and seen, And none of that's a good thing, particularly in the middle of a pandemic having such a dramatic impact on Hollywood at a time when other studios are reorganizing to focus on streaming and laying off hundreds or thousands of employees. So Quibi's debacle is not a reason for joy. It is a reason and opportunity for learning. So rather than mourn or mock Quibi's passing, let's celebrate the chance to learn some of those lessons that other companies can use to avoid stumbling into the same quagmire. To begin, too much money? It's just possible that Quibi raised too much rather than not enough money to become successful. Magic Leap, which raised $2.2 billion before its downfall, may have had some of the same problem. It sounds counterintuitive, but the fundraising attracted a lot of news coverage, a lot of expectations, and also interest from Hollywood producers looking for someone to finance pet projects. But time spent fundraising and managing investors and managing media inquiries is time not spent dealing with other crucial challenges, like making sure all those shows are distinctive, or creating the best possible user experience, or fine-tuning the technology, or so on and so on. 
By contrast, just look at the thousands, and I mean thousands, of online creators on YouTube and other sites who built far bigger audiences than Quibi despite single-digit rosters of team members and production budgets. What did those creators have instead of millions and millions and millions of dollars? Lots of creativity, of course, but also an understanding of their particular medium's needs and strengths, and a boundless willingness to learn and evolve as they went along. I've long said that art lives in the limits that it faces. Quibi's money effaced any understanding of its medium, or any possibility of evolution in its development. Relevant content is king, in line with the understanding and evolution I mentioned just a minute ago. As one young marketing guru told me when I asked him about Quibi's demise, he said, quote, you can have all the money in the world, but it's content, 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 content. He's using Quibi as an object lesson in dealing with the companies that he works with going forward, but it's not just content that matters. It's content relevant to the specific platform for which you're making it. Quibi's big content pitch was feature-length lighthouse projects broken up into 15 or maybe 10 chapters, as they call them, that would unspool over days or weeks on mobile devices. There was literally no evidence suggesting customers wanted the mobile-only, non-bingeable experience Quibi was offering. Effectively, Quibi was trying to create a new way to consume content without any evidence that anybody wanted to be pushed into that new way to do it, and not just creating a new platform to distribute that content. No sharing here. Yes, organic reach is dead, as YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram try to extract every single nickel from advertisers rather than making posts go viral and doing the work that ads would do otherwise. But that doesn't mean your media platform should make it impossible for customers to screenshot and share your shows on social, which is what Quibi inexplicably did. Copyright concerns are understandable, but Katzenberg's last-generation Hollywood approach to social sharing was a needless, self-inflicted wound. Anyone doing media in this generation understands that social conversations are exactly what you should encourage and enable. In an era of nearly endless programming choices, nobody can run enough ads to break through without help from their friends. You need to figure out ways to help your superfans do what they do. Circumstances change. Can you? Katzenberg blamed Quibi's problems on, quote, bad timing, unquote, from the pandemic and lockdown, which arrived just as the app launched in April. That may be comforting narrative for Katzenberg and, we might add, at least one other prominent leader suffering a reversal of fortune in recent months. But truth is, a Quibi was badly positioned to start with, then failed to adapt when circumstances changed which is something that happens a lot. Not only was Quibi built on an unproven usage pattern, the company didn't give users any other way to watch its content when, suddenly, millions of possible customers were stuck at home all day with lots more time and access to bigger screens and had run through all the new shows that were on the other competing streaming services. They could have turned to Quibi and watched what it had, but they couldn't. It took months for Quibi to add the ability to cast shows onto TV screens, which should have been there from the start. This era's most basic media mantra is that customers want to watch what they want, when they want, and where they want. Katzenberg, again, took a very old media approach. When life changed, Quibi wasn't ready, and they paid the price. 
Remember, stuff happens. Be ready for it. Build an asset. For all Katzenberg's old media missteps, he also declined to do the one smart thing every Hollywood studio has done for a century. Build a library. Quibi had more than 100 shows, but didn't own any of them. Producers got excited because Quibi deals not only paid well, but let them get back rights to their projects within two to seven years. That certainly encouraged big-name talent to get involved, but when Quibi hit the skids and Katzenberg went looking for buyers, there was nothing to sell. And no surprise, there were no buyers either. Franchises are bigger than stars. Quibi featured shows from lots of prominent Hollywood talent, both in front of and behind the camera. But again, that's an old-school approach to programming. Other than perhaps Tom Cruise, Dwayne Johnson, and maybe Will Smith, few Hollywood stars in recent years could deliver a big opening weekend for a movie. Now we don't even have opening weekends. But look at what Hollywood pivoted to in recent years. Billion-dollar blockbusters built around durable franchises and few big-name stars. And in streaming, the biggest hit to come from any new service the past year was The Mandalorian on Disney+. Pedro Pascal stars, but I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. You wouldn't know it from the show that he was there. His face is always covered because his character's background story is it's a mortal sin to remove his helmet. Anybody could have played that character. Disney built that show around a beloved minor character in the Star Wars universe instead of a big-name performer and fans still turned out by the millions, rocketing the entire service's fortunes to a galaxy far, far away. By contrast, Katzenberg and Whitman took a page out of the 1995 Hollywood Strategy Guide. They focused on recruiting talent rather than known properties in hopes the stars would draw viewership. Perhaps it would have been smarter to license franchise spinoffs from some of Katzenberg's Hollywood pals instead. Don't be distracted by whiz-bang tech. Another of Quibi's big pitches to advertisers, users, and journalists was its turnstile technology, which allowed users to watch in either horizontal or vertical aspect. The hack was nifty enough, but it came with costs. Creators had to effectively create two different projects, framed for the different aspect ratios. Editors told me that it doubled post-production costs, though the company vigorously disputed that. More importantly, Turnstile created tech hurdles and expenses and a lawsuit over uh, infringement of patents that distracted the company from fine-tuning basic capabilities like watching on a bigger screen or even, as a Kantar Media study found, creating an an effective way to fast-forward or reverse. Fit the business model to the business. Kubi not only wrapped ads around its programs, it also expected people to pay a monthly subscription fee. But YouTube has billions of hours of ad-supported free video. TikTok has millions of hours more. And in between, there's IGTV, a resurgent Snapchat, and Facebook Watch. Why would anyone pay for Quibi's shows? The company never had a compelling answer. Katzenberg said in a release that the company was founded to, quote, create the next generation of storytelling, unquote. The reality was that he and Whitman built their company predicated on business practices and strategies, from the last generation of old-school Hollywood media, even as they promised a new kind of experience for a very different medium. Then they layered in complicated tech that didn't always work, an inability to adapt to dramatically changed circumstances, and a mismatched business model. Let's hope the next time someone raises a few hundred million dollars for a new streaming service, they find smarter ways to spend that dough. 
So those are my thoughts on Quibi. I'd love to hear yours. Please take a moment if you get a chance and drop me a note or take advantage of Anchor.fm's function that allows you to leave an audio message that I could work into a future show. But you can also send it to me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom or on Twitter at David Bloom, and I'll get it and love to hear what you guys think about Quibi and what streaming companies can do going forward. Next part of our show is going to be a conversation with Govan Balakrishnan. Please stick around. I think you'll enjoy it. It's about the idea of a different kind of streaming uh, medium, in this case, streaming audio, content, news-oriented content on a subscription basis from some of the best news organizations in the world, read by professional readers and delivered to your box. Govan's a really interesting guy. We had a very wide-ranging conversation about the future of all kinds of audio, whether it's podcasts or his kind of project or many other things that are coming along. And uh, I think it'd be worth your time. So we'll be right back after a message. Welcome back, and here's my conversation with Govan Balakrishnan, the CEO and co-founder of Curio. Uh, give a listen. You guys are doing subscription audio on demand, SAOD, instead of SVOD. Gosh, it, it, it takes me back to the early days of OTT and SVOD and all, all of that. Well, that's now. I mean, this is the early days. I mean, SVOD is like... Uh, <laughs> in so i mean uh, i've been writing about because you know, we have all those big streaming services that come on and then they realized oh we don't have any original shows because we can't make anything and yeah, yeah. apple like spent a lot of money on tv plus and they thrilled out like five shows and then the internet i mean everything fell apart with the the pandemic and now they're trying to it's like they didn't have a library they didn't have anything so other than the fact that they're a two trillion dollar company why haven't they bought you <laughs> it's interesting you say that david because i was just as you were saying the apple just on your earlier point about apple tv i was thinking of jennifer jennifer aniston being on loop on apple tv uh, yeah yeah exactly i mean and it's actually it's a pretty entertaining show the morning show is pretty pretty entertaining but uh, I love uh, Billy Crudup's character there. It's just he's just chewing scenery like a dragon, man. I mean, he's having a grand, a grand old time. But uh, <laughs> but uh, to your point about why haven't they bought us? I have no idea. Well, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, David, who knows what happens at uh, you know yeah. at all the bigger companies, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the one that's actually doing the buying right now is uh, Spotify, right? I mean, they're the ones that are yeah. really picking up the companies. Give me a sense, I guess, to start um, your take on the broader audio space, you know, because as you just mentioned, you know, Spotify has bought several companies, including the one that I host my podcast on, uh, Anchor, a couple of others, that they, and they did that deal with Joe Rogan, et cetera, et cetera, who's... Joe Rogan, no knock on Joe Rogan, who's had gigantic success, but seems like the antithesis of what you guys do because he's all of and you guys are like facts news and like brands and stuff like that so yeah i mean it's it's sort of uh, an interesting 
you know set up first of all david thank you so much for that wonderful piece in uh, in forbes you know it was it was very very thoughtful uh, so in, in terms of your question itself on the broader audio landscape in, i i don't i i i don't know if i told you this the last time but you know when uh, for me i saw the early days of video streaming right i was at the bbc and i was doing strategy there and the bbc by accident not by accident but they had developed an amazing video streaming platform called the iplayer which right, was only that. in the uk yeah right. and it consumed over 40% of uk's bandwidth i mean i wasn't <laughs> jealous about your food i wasn't jealous about your weather but i was jealous about the iplayer it's like man that's here here for the bbc was that mark thompson when they did that was he there still? yeah he, yeah so i was there when mark thompson was running the place and i worked uh, for mark and in the early days of the iplayer when by sheer accident the iplayer was consuming about 40 to 50% of the uk's internet wow and uh, and i don't think they were really marketing it either and all But the happened if they marketed right i mean that would have been crazy there wouldn't have been any internet left for like everybody else I mean well this was the thing David because the ISPs were on the door saying you know you guys are just taking all the internet away mm-hmm. and uh but I saw the early days of video streaming and and for me it was just two things coming together uh, or a couple of things coming together one was this idea of video streaming and I just saw how easy it was my mother could get on Netflix but my mother could get couldn't get on a podcast it is you know simple as that right <laughs> but uh <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, but the others, we adore just, them but boy they they are not tech they are not tech wizards typically they, i think i think i think honestly in my case david if if my mom understands it then uh, i think that's a big success for me it's um, the mom rule right it's the mom rule <laughs> absolutely so so i sort of i sort of seen this sort of early uh, video streaming happening uh, and and i was sort of in a way i had a ringside seat there at the bbc and then i went on to lead strategy for bbc news and the other thing that came to me was what is the view from the content producer because you know the bbc we were sending correspondence to afghanistan and forward operating bases and all of that but these stories would come back and they would get 10 15 seconds of engagement on the website right for me this yeah. was just like whoa what is happening right so so that was the second thing which was i suddenly saw that you know the daily sort of news agenda was crowding out really thoughtful insightful and and really you know frankly pieces that really sort of show us the way in terms of the future and how we live our lives today but it often gets subsumed in the daily news agenda and the third was uh, an obsession with audio because i i had sort of left the bbc on a, on a whim i'd gone back to design school and i and i basically was obsessed with this idea of screenless media right the fact that you know there's going to be a revolution where the eyes are not going to be the only sort of you know means of consuming information or interacting with the internet so i'd spent a lot of my time in in quite an academic setting thinking about what the screenless interactions look like and when i came out uh, i sort of almost jammed all of this together and i said we need sort of audio was showing the same characteristics or similar characteristics as video streaming in the early days and i thought there's really a space for a highly targeted uh produced but equally you know monetization focused product uh, because i'd seen the, it being the graveyard of many a company and i thought you know what audio is going to be amazing um and in the early days it was really hard because i would go and pitch audio and everybody would say you know audio has just gone by you know, it's, it's it's in the rearview mirror it's not in the future i mean was it 4 years later is that right 4 years now it's been uh, yeah uh, there about yeah uh, about 4 years i would say yes where did you go to design school anyway i went to the royal college of art Okay. Um, in London. Not a bad not a bad um, joint, I've heard. 
not a bad joint and as it turns out uh, johnny i was now the rector uh, i wish i had uh, i had been there when he was uh, he was there you know what you're an alum you can uh, tap in so. so johnny i want exactly. to sit in i just want to i just want to audit your class all right so can't hurt your degree but you know, cuz the royal college probably needed a little buffing up you know it's it's only been around for 300 years or something um, <laughs> exactly so you had that those three strands sort of animating you i mean it's sort of funny to think about a design without a screen because it's like it feels like design sort of needs a frame but you're talking about not just screenless but frameless design ultimately i think i think that's right uh you know in a, in a way david i think i think the sort of the analogy i use and you know i'm as much uh you know i think one thing to say is we are at very much at the beginnings of this whole audio revolution right and the, often the story i say is that if someone from 1930 came along and saw twitter or facebook or instagram they wouldn't recognize it whereas if they heard a podcast i mean they would say yeah i recognize it as a radio show right and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong in that it's just that i think you know particularly with airpods and voice enabled devices and 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 you know nobody's really started thinking about what does content look like or sound like you know with all of these new interactions that are possible Well, no, that's an interesting question. What is it like? I mean, one of the things that I saw that, I, that kind of caught my ear, and you as a design gu- uh, guru now, you've been elevated. It comes with the, the Royal College of Art degree, as you're now a guru. Uh, <laughs> I think they might disown you know, me, but... Uh, we sh- yeah, they might, they might. Uh, this notion that one of the reasons that TikTok, for instance, took off was because of AirPods, that you could just have them in your ear all the time, comfortable, lasted most of the day, and you could... jump into TikTok and hear the music and dance around and you didn't really bug anybody right i mean it was like that yeah. was one of those experiences that became able to be an ongoing thing without annoying the crap out of your parents or whomever right because you have the airpods on and i'm just sort of curious yeah. what that how that plays out with a more sober audience and intention i i think i think for us david the, the sort of almost the going back principle here was that we wanted to really focus on creating as i call you know a consistently high quality experience and i think that was one sort of i wouldn't say distinction with the podcast space i think the podcast space is construed as quite a lot of content uh, and there's obviously great content but there's also not that great content and you know obviously your yeah. your podcast falls into the former but it's like early youtube right so early youtube like was early youtube surfing squirrels was most of it but there was some serious stuff too right now we're kind of the early youtube mo- moment right exactly and in all all the early you know sort of sort of netscape moment right in the sense that it's 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 open it's the web it's it's everything's out there it's not i mean i can't say the web is good or bad right it's it's it is what it is but 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 you're right right it's it's sort of the internet and the podcast world is you know open and it's uh, everything's out there so for us it was really about uh you know creating first of all right what we said is that the content that comes into the product has to be consistently high quality that it doesn't necessarily have to be just a big brand though we you know obviously go after them but it's also about thoughtful you know specialist content as well so you know whether it's science philosophy whatever it is now once we've got this sort of content universe our whole philosophy again was that uh, it sort of almost goes back to the early days of apple right when they would say you know those who are serious about software make their own hardware 
So for us, it was, you know, those who are serious about content almost build their own product and their experiences. So, and I think I would say we are at the foothills of that. So to your question about how is this play in with a sort of a serious audience, the convenience and and the ease of use uh, is is what, you know, really comes in. So, uh, and we're not here, but I'm, I'm sort of speculating here, but, you know, you should be able to ask Curio questions and Curio is able to put together something. So, for example, you know, I'm going out for a 20-minute run. Uh, I want something that's going to keep get me energized or get me, ex- you know, sort of really inspired. You know, mm. we can we should be able to put together content of that nature. So th- we are again at the very, very we are almost at the graphical user interface design level when, from 1980 when it comes to audio. But there's so much more that you could do, right? You could create location-specific content. You can, you know, sort of you know, curate content according to you know people's time of the day, day of the week. There's so much that we can do. Which also plays to you know uh, a sort of a time poor information knowledge hungry audience. Now that's an interesting thing. I interviewed a company recently. Kevin Costner is actually one of the people who's oh. founded it. The actor called Here Here, and they are about speaking of location specific. There's is sort of audio content tied to where you are, designed for people traveling, like on road yeah. trips, or like oh, if you're going to go on a road trip, you know, here's like information that can play off of your phone into your car as you're traveling around about this ghost town over here in the west or this trail over here you know things like that you know here's this national park and which is great you know it feels like the museum tour taken to the next level you know they're starting out in in the you know western united states and they want to extend but that notion of tying audio to where you are in other ways whether it's temporally or physically is an interesting idea in terms of how you program right so there's things we want to listen to in the morning there's things we want to listen to on maybe a different morning sunday morning is different than monday morning in terms of what we want to listen to right that's exactly right, David. And in fact, there was an interesting statistic which said that uh, Americans multitask for seven hours a day, which means you know people in the United States live <laughs> live thirty one hour days, which is which is I mean, we can quib- quibble about is it seven whatever, but we we do you know all acknowledge that a big chunk of it is uh, is multitasking, and mm. and I think and this is where honestly, David, I think we all have our our cadences, right? We have you know we feel different. We are different people on a Monday morning to a Wednesday evening to a Sunday afternoon. And this is something that traditional radio, NPR or the BBC has really honed in for a particular audience. You can start thinking in terms of the, the sort of the capabilities of devices like the AirPod, but also combine it with, you know, a highly concentrated but highly controllable content base. And you're able to sort of deliver that you know, content in really, really interesting ways to suit the sort of the cadences of people's lives. That's sort of where we are going towards. And and if anything, David, one of the interesting things for us has been, you know, people, you know, particularly the more engaged users on Curio listen to us for about 60 minutes uh, per session. And when you, when you compare that back to, you know, sort of average time that people spend on most newspapers or magazines, I think Pew did a re- bit of research which said it's about two to three minutes or five minutes at best. Right. Mm. So actually, you know, there is something to be said for creating that experience side of content. And that's sort of quite exciting for us. The content side of content yeah. is obviously exciting, but the experience side is equally exciting. Well, you must have uh, access to significant amounts of data about user habits. I mean, obviously, yours is probably a somewhat elevated 
crowd of users. How many folks do you guys have? In terms of the user base itself, they would, you know, be, you know, some of it is commercially sensitive, but what I can say is we've been tripling our audience in the last three years. Just in the last year, about 18 million minutes of audio were listened to on Curio. And what is also interesting for us, David, is that you know, we are actually speaking to a very, very different demographic, though, you know, you might think it's the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, which obviously have a heartland audience. Our audience, the average age is between 25 to 34. You know, it's it's actually quite global. Only about 30, 35% is in the US. The rest of it's outside the US, but not just in Western markets. Broadly, the split is between equal between men and women. So in a way, I think what is exciting here as well, David, is in as much as, yes, it is, you know, a certain type of an audience in terms of wanting this sort of content. But actually, it is it is a lot of data. And again, you know, one of the reasons why we went with the subscription model was so that all this data would only serve the subscriber and no one else. Yeah, I was going to ask because you guys don't take ads. People pay how much how much a month for the uh, subscriptions? It's uh, $7.99 a month, $59.99 a year. You mentioned the journal. You've mentioned, uh, I think, the Financial Times, The Economist. Uh, there's some other highfalutin uh, business first, but culturally aware organizations that contribute as their their content as well. Give me a list of some of the additional major outlets that are part of what you guys offer. Uh, like you said, David, it's uh, it's the Financial Times, it's the Guardian, it's the Economist, Wired, uh, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Business Week, and and there's also a long tail about in total about fifty publications. But I think the one thing I'm probably worth stressing here as well, David, is uh, I think you know in a way we have had to go back because you know we don't offer people just daily news, right? Up to the minute news is not our gig. So in a way we have actually had to go back and slightly consider. What is actually the value of, you know, journalism that has a longer shelf life or journalism and shelf life? I don't mean months or years, though that's the case, too, but also a couple of weeks, a couple of days even. And and the thing that we've realized, David, is that really great journalism helps people learn from the real world. You know, by the time someone writes a book about COVID and learns about what's happening, you know, it'd be a couple of months or years, right? And actually, a lot of that content is actually being talked about. You know, when Yuval Noah Harari writes about, you know, what is life after COVID going to seem like, he's going to write it in one of these publications. And that's what's really exciting in terms of the content base that we play. So 50 publications, clearly not just business. I mean, the Journal and the Economist, certainly the Financial Times with its its rather puckish sense of humor. And it's, <laughs> I think quirk, I mean, it's sort of known for a rather quirky take, but I, I mean, I've read the Times off and on over over the years and they you know they'll do restaurant i was shocked to see a restaurant review and of a restaurant in culver <laughs> city which is a few miles from me culver city california uh, at a moment when it was kind of a happening place it's like the financial times could find culver city but you know uh, they, they you know along with the one in singapore and the you know and the one in uh, you know the the high-end district of Tokyo, et cetera, et cetera. But they do a lot of cultural writing as well and, and, and some other things. So in terms of how you deliver your content of all kinds, you have some idea what your customers like. Uh, you have all this stuff coming in, but it's not, I mean, it has a shelf life. But as you say, it's still often a fairly short shelf life compared to uh, the surfing squirrel video. How do you take information about that and get it to the right people in the right time, the right, literally the right physical space, the right mental space, the right uh, temporal space? How do, how does that work for you guys? How do you know? I mean, like, yeah, like so the journal has 50 stories a day coming in and you want to know, okay, we got to make sure we get them the wine column. 
for instance, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, how does that work? So it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, point, uh, David. And and actually, right, you know, just before that, I think your point about the, you know, the publications like the Financial Times, in some ways, actually, yes, you know, we do, but it's not just them. I just want to talk a little bit more about some of the specialist publications as well. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, we partner with Foreign Policy, we partner with Fast Company and MIT Technology Review. And all of these publications, in a way, I think for us, the way we think of it is they all shine uh, a light on, you know, the forces that are shaping our world today and, in, in, and different facets of it, right? We even have a publication called E.ON, which is really about philosophy and psychology. Now, one might question mm-hmm. as to why you know, where does that fit in? But also, I think it goes back to three criteria which we think of, David, when we when we sort of choose content. One is uh, we help people understand the world, right? So it's not just know about what's happening or stay informed, but it's actually to understand uh, in a slightly deeper sense all the forces that are shaping our world. The second one, David, is we, we go after content that helps people somehow live better lives, right? Self-improvement is a, is a big angle here. It's, it can be, you know, philosophy, it can be wellness, it can be science, all of that really helps people lead better lives. You know, what are the sort of the consequences of DNA testing for, you know? If, yeah, philosophy is, the whole point of philosophy is understanding how to live a better life, right? I mean, that's exactly, exactly. By its nature, that's, I think that's sort of the ultimate definition of philosophy, thinking about exactly. how we can live a better life. And the third oh, idea is what we call smart escape. Right. So it is it is it is it is content that people don't feel is vacuous. It doesn't waste time, but also it is slightly escapist in nature. So a piece I can allude to is there was a piece in The Economist 1843 magazine called Trapped in Iran. And it was about a journalist who went to Iran and then got detained by the authorities there for uh, about six months or so. Right, it's a first-person account of someone you know being trapped there and what happens. And it's a story. I wouldn't say that's it's an a, escape it's a, it's all experience. Right. Yeah. It's an escape, all right. It's literally yeah. an escape, but content of that nature. So it's understand the world, smart self-improvement and smart escape. Are you thinking about expanding? I mean, uh, I don't know what's going to be left in terms of this the written word. And I say that as a person who makes most of his living off the written word as opposed to the spoken one. Is there going to be much left in terms of publications to choose from or add to? Or, or is this like we've got a pretty good batch here and people seem pretty happy with it? I think it goes back to the point about the idea of learning from great journalism, uh, David. So uh, in that sense, right, it's not so much about, you know, the breadth of publications, but I think we have a real opportunity to start deepening our relationship even with our existing partners. A lot of the partners, for example, are largely in, in the in the print world, and we largely live in the audio world. Uh, often our demographics don't always align. But regardless, some of the finest storytellers and the finest journalists and the finest investigators exist in these publications and we're just trying to tell the story in a different format so if anything david i would say rather than breadth of publications it's more about depth now the only place where breadth would come in particularly in the english language is if there was a certain genre which we really wanted to approach but we didn't you know our publications didn't cover it though those are few and far between the other Mm -hmm. angle david is is to start thinking about, you know, as we sort of expand globally, to start thinking about other languages and about more localized content, right? That's where it starts getting more interesting. Because I think, I mean, I am originally from India and, you know, people are, you know, stuck in, you know, huge traffic jams for all the day, right? And the content <laughs> offer, particularly for the year, is not there. <laughs> I'm sure you might relate to it being from LA. But, well, and you've got uh, in India, 20, 23 official languages, I think. Plus, you know, Hindi and English are national national languages, and there's 23 regional languages that are official. So, yeah, I mean, we've got an opportunity right there for all kinds of different content, right? 
absolutely david and and it's you know and again right i think i think people often make the mistake of thinking that yeah just because uh, you know it is it is not a big market a western market you know people are not willing to pay but actually if anything right you know you see the adoption of netflix or even spotify for that matter in places like india right and you think gosh you know people are willing to pay for value they may not be able to willing yeah. to pay 60 dollars but they're definitely willing to pay I and mean, even netflix has had to i mean they've had to drop their prices i think it's a dollar 99 or i don't know how many rupees it is i but it's like a, roughly a buck 99 but people are paying they're they're getting an audience there who are willing to pay for access to all that they have and they've spent a, a lot of time and energy to try to penetrate that indian market bought a lot of programming there I mean, it's a gigantic market there's lots of opportunities exactly david and you know this you know i mean you 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 definitely know this but you know in a way i think the opportunity here is sort of i think at the moment if you if you look at our content base it's global content that travels globally then mm-hmm. you also want to create local content that travels locally then you want to create local content that can travel globally now that would be the the holy grail right when you're uh, when you're actually able to find a parasite or you know a, a sort of some a film or any anything from uh, a different market that travels globally Right, and right. that's quite exciting for us. Your expansion is going to be additional markets, additional languages, as opposed to additional publications. But obviously, if you go into an India, maybe you're going to get the India Times or correct, or, you know, something like that. I mean, that's that's a big that's a big media company, obviously. But there are plenty of other ones running around in India that, for instance, that that would be interested, or the the, the South China Morning South China Morning Post. Correct. Yeah, something like yeah. that would be an obvious opportunity, I would think. Who are you competing against here? I guess um, you're a little bit different because of the content you have, but who are you competing against? Just as you know, TV Plus or Apple competes not just with HBO Max, Peacock, but also competes with the free services, the free ad support services like Tubi, and then it also competes as well, though, with some of the niche programmers like the Crunchyrolls of the world and the Africa Channel and people like that. What's this sector look like in the subscription audio space? It's an interesting question, David, because I mean, in in one sense, I mean, just in terms of, I'll just talk a little bit about the. Uh, south space uh subscription audio uh space but uh you know well, we got we still got to work on this man i'm just telling we you we got still got to work on that <laughs> but i mean for for me you know in the early days david when we would pitch this service right it was very, very difficult to cut through because everybody thought the addressable market was the podcast market you know mm-hmm. while big wasn't that big right and along came you know headspace and calm and suddenly mm-hmm. you know you add up both of their revenues and it's more than half the us podcast market right and they were selling audio right and often silence but it was it it was you know in a way they had prioritized it and it really worked quite well that's true it's like the, the same- they're like the john cage though of subscription audio because as you said they're selling silence he did you know <laughs> four minutes 33 seconds and people like quote play four minutes 33 seconds of silence i mean they're selling silence in some ways it's like oh you're selling water who's going to buy pay for that turns out right people will pay for that Okay. Uh, who knew? And they are. I mean, in a way, you know, they are hugely valuable properties, right? Not just okay. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm being probably flippant, but obviously with sleep stories, and they've really sort of built a beautiful product, and they are genuinely quite an inspiration for us. So, you know, in a way, David, I think 
uh, coming back to your question about competition, right? Yeah. I mean, in one sense, you know, you could say that, you know, everything that competes for your year, whether it is podcast, whether it is music, probably it's even, you know, beyond music, where you get news and, you know, information and, uh, and journalism, all of that is competing. But in some ways, David, I think for us, more than 60% of our subscribers are not podcast listeners. In fact, they're not even traditionally audio people. It's just that suddenly the product has come along, which was easy to use and suddenly added value to their lives. And they're willing to take it along with them. Right. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, in as much as we would be describing, you know, competition today, where the opportunity sort of outflanks the, the state of the market completely. In fact, you know, it's it's sort of, you know, it just blows it out of the water. But so that's the way we think of it, David, which is, you know, are we in the audio business? Are we in the learning business? Are we in the in the sort of the making the world a smarter place business? You know, it's, it depends on the perspective. And I'm not being sort of facetious here, but genuinely, I think the opportunity when it comes to the years is so much bigger than the players that are there today. You know, that's an interesting way to think about it because I hadn't really thought about Calm and Headspace, but absolutely they're about that stuff. And clearly you look at where the big tech companies are going with their smart speakers and their voice assistants and all that. They think that generally that's a big business. They care less about the content, though I guess just this week Amazon rolled out podcasts. So yep. Uh, yep. as part of it, uh, Amazon Music. Uh, which is the uh, kind of a neglected, I mean, Amazon Music is one of those things that they throw into the Amazon Prime. And you could just get their version of streaming music for free. It's not particularly distinctive, but it's big and free on top of everything else. And now you've got okay. that going on. So th there's there's markets there. I mean, it's really, and then Audible. I mean, they they own Audible, which does books. So that's different from what you guys do in terms of its sensibility, but it's still... It's closer to what you guys do in a lot of ways. But there's so much stuff out there. You're right. We don't even think about it. Now we've got Apple announcing the fitness thing, which is yes, half a step from calm, plus, yeah. right? So the fitness thing doesn't have to be looking at somebody doing something, though I guess that's part of the I guess that's part of the appeal. And some people like watching people sweat and exercise while they're trying to sweat and exercise. That's another thing. It could be another thing, right? So so this is a gigantic space. Absolutely, David. And I think I think that's exactly right. I mean it's it's really a question of how we how one views the market. I know one could make the argument that you know a company like Calm or Headspace should not exist at all because Actually, you know what? There are plenty of meditation podcasts out there. You know, there are plenty of sleep podcasts out there. But I think, I think the, I think what you started by saying, you know, in terms of yeah, you know, it's like YouTube, right? Or you know, it's like the early days. It's like Netscape, right? In a way, mm -hmm. Netscape itself, while being a product, the internet or the or websites are not a product, right? In the same way, the podcasts are not a product, right? right. You know, they're all they're all very valuable, and but I think the the sort of the bringing together of the experience. Right. I think that is the key here. Uh, and, and in that sense, right, you know, if you think of us, you know, we think in terms of, you know, we are the, we're obviously in the audio space, but, you know, we are very much part of, you know, helping people learn and grow and discover and, and live more fulfilling lives. And you could say, okay, you're intersecting into the education market, you're inter intersecting into the wellness market. So it's, it de really depends on which market you think you're operating in. And that's my conversation with Govan Balakrishnan, the CEO and co-founder of Curio. Hope you enjoyed it. 
would love to hear your thoughts on subscription audio. If you're using Curio or other kinds of audio that maybe isn't even traditional podcasting, which has had quite a moment in the last year or so. Also love to hear your thoughts on Quibi and the future of streaming media, streaming video, as we see lots of changes ahead, I think, and not just what's happening with Quibi, but the reorganization of NBC Universal, of Disney, of Warner Media to try to focus their prodigious media production operations on creating for streaming first, streaming mainly while preserving some of their legacy businesses. I think Viacom CBS is doing much the same as they're getting ready to roll out their Paramount Plus streaming service way late to my mind, but still on the way. Let me know what you think. As I mentioned earlier, you can leave an audio message through uh, anchor.fm, which hosts and syndicates my content across 10 platforms. You can also send me a note on Twitter, at David Bloom, on LinkedIn, at David L. Bloom. Love to connect and hear from you about what you think on these or other topics in the business of media, entertainment, and technology. If you really like my show, please, please, please rate, review, share, and subscribe. If you really, 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 really like my show, I'd love for you to consider going to Anchor.fm and taking advantage of their Patreon-style uh, user support function, which lets you throw a few dollars into the into the till to help keep this well-oiled media machine rolling along. But I certainly understand in this challenging time that may not be so easy. I also want to encourage everybody, if you haven't been among the 51 million or so people that have already voted, consider voting early. Get out there. Get your civic duty done. Contribute to this democracy. It's important that people talk about where they're going and what they're doing and get it out there about who they want to see run our country. Take advantage of what our country allows you to do and make it there. So in the meantime, please take care of yourselves. Be safe. Stay sane. Let me know how you're hanging in there and know that uh, I'm thinking of all of you and I hope that you are doing okay. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.